Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz. Did you know that the world needs 9 million more nurses and midwives if it is to achieve universal health coverage by 2030? 2020 is the year of the nurse and the midwife. World Health Assembly has designated 2020 to them because, I quote, these are the people who devote their lives to caring for mothers and children, giving life-saving immunizations and health advice, looking after older people and generally meeting everyday essential health needs. They are often the first and only point of care in their communities. To honor their work and to give them the recognition they need, you will be listening to a few of their stories in the upcoming episodes. This is the first part of a podcast series featuring nurses that mostly do not work in clinical practice anymore because they're using their knowledge gained in nursing to impact healthcare on a decision-making level where they help improve the system bit by bit. Our first speaker was Shauna Butler, nurse economist and entrepreneurs from the US, currently the host of See You Now podcast, focused on sharing perspective of nurses on healthcare. She is also a member of the core team of the Exponential Medicine team at Singularity University. In the US, we are seeing nurses move into greater levels of leadership and responsibility. Where we have a ways to go is in the policy realm. Um, When you take a look at other parts of the world, and specifically in the African continent, where you see a lot of leadership and innovation, it is with nurse-managed clinics. And a big part of that is that for so many people on this planet, the highest level of care that they're ever going to receive is going to be a nurse. I also spoke with Carmi Soder, who currently lives in Israel. Carmi is former pediatric care nurse with over 25 years of healthcare experience in clinical, administrative and tech, which she gained by serving as chief administrative officer at Sutter Health. She led pediatric department for Kaiser Permanente, worked at Google and co-founded Newborn Solutions Registered Nursing Corporation. I think nurses and physicians and people that work in healthcare, because there's so many layers and levels of these kind of, it really takes a team to work in healthcare. People would be willing to give their feedback and their input if they were asked and if they were listened to. And I think we can help people in healthcare with solving problems uh, rather than creating additional problems from solutions that just don't work. Another nurse in the series will be Canadian Mary Lou Ackerman, Vice President of Innovation and Digital Health with CE Health, Canada's largest social enterprise. Mary Lou is also a founding member of Sonciel, which stands for Society of Nursing Scientists, Innovator and Entrepreneur Leaders. Mary Lou is also an active member of CHIEF, Canada's Health Informatics Executive Forum with Digital Health Canada. More about that in the future episodes, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast to be notified about each of these episodes automatically. In today's program, you will hear from Sherry Ruano from the UK, who is founder of Rhythmia Breath Medical Wellbeing Program and a Rhythmia Specialist Nurse at Imperial College NHS Trust. 
Sherry currently combines her role as an arrhythmia specialist nurse at the Imperial College NHS Trust with her private practice as a stress management expert and wellness consultant in central London. Sherry has consulted companies such as Coutsbank, HCA Healthcare, Oasis, Warehouse and private international spas towards the implementation of a culture of wellness and well-being for patients, clients, employees and executives. She is part of an international medical team of holistic recovery where she acts as mind-body therapist, offering interventions with a focus on recovery from addictions, anxiety, mental distress and depression. She also has a background as a professional ballet dancer, which drives an intense desire to bring the benefits of physical exercise and well-being to individuals suffering from chronic long-term conditions. Now let's go to the discussion with Sherry. She spoke about neurocardiology, struggles she came across as a nurse entrepreneur when looking for validation of her solutions. She also mentioned the openness to digital health adoption in the UK because of COVID-19 and more. Enjoy the discussion and go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to read about other speakers in the series as well and browse to older episodes of the show. So Sherry, I will start with perhaps a an unusual question. How much do you... Uh, detect when you're under stress given that you're a stress management expert and wellness consultant so just that that's a really interesting question one of the first symptoms that i notice within myself when when i'm stressed or when i'm close to burnt out is that i start developing headaches and i become really short fused means I, I lose patience quite easily. And that's when I say, oh, I need to step back and I need to find my time and practice self-care routines, uh, mindfulness and, and movement. Is that always possible, you know, to take time to de-stress because you have a very, very active life, which we will talk about later on. But I, I'm just thinking now that when you've got executives, leaders, it's it sometimes um, there's just so many things to do that it's actually hard to find time for anything. In all honesty, I, it's not always possible. And I can't always take time off, especially now that I have the role as, as a CEO of, of a digital therapeutic platform. I sometimes I just have to force myself to do things and go with the flow. But I am very conscious that if I push too far, I will pay the consequences. You are the founder of Rhythmia Breath Medical Wellbeing Program, uh, the co-founder and CEO of uh, Rhythmia Breath Hub Digital Therapeutics. But you, you also work as an Rhythmia Specialist Nurse at Imperial College NHS uh, Trust. I want to start there a little bit. So how did you get into nursing? I wanted to become a dancer. So I was a professional ballet dancer and I danced 19 years. And there was a point where my parents said, okay, you need to do something now with your life. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, dancing wasn't, you know, as, as good as a career path as this, for example, now. 
So I decided to go to university and I thought that, you know, I could do something quite easy, straightforward, four years of degrees and that's it. In my last year of university, I suffered a lower back injury and I had to stop dancing. Therefore, I finished the degree, but not only that, I went to specialised in intensive care and cardiac nursing. And this is how my journey um, with hearts and, and cardiology started. Can you tell me a little bit more about the working environment that you still work in as an arrhythmia specialist nurse? And how come is it that you still do that job, given that being a CEO is not exactly something that would leave you with much time for anything else? I work as an arrhythmia specialist nurse in the NHS, but I only work part-time. And so basically it's only two days a, two days a week, so it doesn't eat all of my time. Having the, the experience and the, the opportunity to work in the NHS also gives me many other skills as a CEO of, of a company that has to do with you know, cardiology. And this is the reason why I, I still would like to keep practicing as a nurse in the NHS. It also keeps me grounded. Rhythmia Breath was granted in 2017 uh, the credential of being the first method in the UK to combine modern medicine with holistic practices for the prevention and rehabilitation of uh, cardiovascular diseases and mental well-being. So how exactly does Rhythmia Breath work and uh, how did you manage to get that kind of an approval? Because healthcare at the moment while we are aware that it's more sick care than healthcare it's just where it is at this point so it's hard to work more on the prevention and to take more holistic approach inside the healthcare system so it all happened eight years ago almost nine years ago now i I was working in a in a cardiology research study. That's before I became an, an arrhythmia specialist nurse. And by that time, I'd had a little difficulty with my health. I developed an autoimmune condition. And, uh, and as a consequence, I also had a lot of cardiac symptoms, such as palpitations, uh, chest pains, inability to exercise, etc. And... By that time, I, I discovered yoga. Well, I was practicing yoga, you know, many years before that happened. But then I had to go to a completely different style and, and slow down. This is then when, uh, Jazza, I realized, wait a second, everything I am doing outside my work, meditation, mindfulness and holistic practices that I am doing for myself, for my own well-being, can also be implemented in the work that I am doing. By that time, I was doing a, I was running a research study with several cardiologists, and it was to do with how cardiac patients and patients with prediabetes see their own condition and their mindset. And this is how, how everything started. I went to the States, to New York, and then Richmond, Virginia, and I specialized as a stress management practitioner and as a yoga therapist for people with heart disease, depression, anxiety, and cancer. Then I came back to, um, to the UK, and this is when I developed Rhythmia Breath Method 
for prevention and rehabilitation of heart disease. So what does it include? If I am a patient that wants to use this um, treatment look like, and is it covered by the NHS? Uh, so we came across that no centers or clinics in the UK were using similar methodologies or approaches, as I said, in the UK, right? Whereas in the US, there are many centers and institutions taking a more holistic approach to cardiovascular disease and, and rehabilitation. So um, I took a step forward and I decided I, I consulted several cardiologists to be part of the initiative. The seven, eight months of gathering data and doing some research and, and calling centers, we came to the conclusion that preventive cardiology needed a bit more pushed in the UK. So the idea is not new. I, I didn't invent the wheel at all. But certainly, Rhythmia Breath started this push in prevention that it's so needed, in not only in cardiology, but also in the entire healthcare system in the UK. At the moment, it's, we are in the process of trying to work with the NHS, which, as you can imagine, is a long, tedious and painful process. So we offer comprehensive lifestyle Um, management clinics and we set up a bespoke program for these patients looking to the um, cardiovascular risk factors uh, from smoking, obesity, hypertension and, and even environmental risk factors. We create a program for them which includes cardiovascular exercise, nutrition, mental health support or mental well-being, some forms of massage therapies and other holistic uh, methodologies. And we combine all that together in a program of six to eight weeks and we measured everything with sub um, subjective and objective outcomes. And at the end of the program, The, uh, all the data is reviewed by a cardiologist and they decide if the patient can be discharged or they need to continue with us. I assume that uh, that includes the use of many wearables and digital health devices? At the moment, um, not really, because we observe, we basically monitor everything in clinics. So we offer in-house treatments um, at the moment. When we launch our app, we will be able to do it through wearables. However, many patients nowadays, they do have their own devices, they do have their own wearables, and we just get extra data from these patients. Is that helpful or is that more noisy? I used to think that it just creates more noise, but in the background is that it gives us so much more information and gives us so much data that is very useful for us to see the improvement of, of the patient. You actually deliver counseling sessions in the NHS for patients uh, about to undergo invasive procedures or receive cardiac devices. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how does this counseling look like? Does that fall under your uh, nursing role or is this just a separate consultancy that patients can seek Yeah, so the the counseling sessions that I provide um, are basically part of the NHS, are part of my NHS role, right? And this is a very specific skill that arrhythmia nurses need to have. 
um, ICDs and CRTDs, basically they are defibrillators, and they're devices that are implanted in a person's body very close to their heart, right? So these devices present challenges, not only in the technical management of the device, but also on the psychosocial impact that has on a patient. ICD counseling prior to implantation and in some instances during follow-up can allow a patient to address the concerns that they may have and attempt to minimize any possible negative psychological impact. We give them the opportunity to discuss the positive and negative implications of the device and the changes and challenges they could potentially face after having the device implanted. Emotional support is paramount, it's incredibly important and in my experience most of the times patients are very concerned about the psychological consequences that not only brings the device but the acceptance around that the fact that they need a device is because they have a medical condition and this requires a very specific set of skills from the nurse or the specialist nurse who is delivering the message. Sounds like something that also requires a lot of post-operative care and support. Yes, totally, totally. And this is why, for example, um, in, in the hospital where I work, we offer ICD support groups. Um, they work fantastically well for patients uh, that have difficulties dealing with their condition. And as I said, with a with a psychological impact. I can answer your question and in, in two different ways. So the first one is this this impact is so strong because patients have the feelings that their heart has failed them. Their own hearts is failing them, right? It's fading away and as a consequence they need an external device for them to carry on. Sometimes you see, you know, you, you find these extraordinarily positive human beings and I love seeing that, you know, the, this, uh, this type of patients that they say, well, at least I do have a device that will keep me alive. And this is wonderful, this is fantastic. But sometimes you find these this patients that they, they need to make peace with the fact that their hearts are not functioning as they were Therefore, they need to have this in order to be alive. So this is number one. And, and the number two difficulty of fear from patients is something that we call um, inefficient shock. And this is when the device, although they save lives, sometimes it can malfunction on its own. And that's something... It's not very nice, it's actually very nasty. So patients experience shocks that are given into their heart with no reasons. They are not arrhythmias, but the machine has delivered a shock. Sometimes this is painful, sometimes patients can faint, and sometimes, you know, all the patients, they don't even feel this. But this is the two major fears around having these devices fitting in. Given that you are running a company and are working as a nurse, how do you see the role of nurses in general in the clinical environment and your position, which is slightly specific compared to other nurses that just work in a hospital? 
So I think the role of the nurses have changed drastically and significantly in the last 10 years, I would say eight to 10 years. And now nurses really want to specialize in something else, right? And they really want to be seen as this you know, healthcare professionals that are incredibly valuable, not only for the doctors, but also for the healthcare system. Because we do have a very specific and unique um, set of skills that unfortunately is not, you know, is is not being um, delivered or seen in, in doctors. And I'm saying this with all confidence, right? They sometimes have not been told how to do it. And sometimes they do not provide and they do not have the time to do so. So I would like to see more nurses being confident and ready to to move forward. And as I said, to be seen as something else, much more that only, you know, the the doctors um, subordinate, as we used to see this, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, it still happens, Jaza, let me tell you, it, is, it is still happens a lot, unfortunately. But more and more, you see the role of nurses as, as you know, more independent. Do you see that uh, your peers or the existing nurses that you work um, how do they uh, kind of perceive everything that you're doing? You know, I, I, I imagine that you are also bringing them a specific kind of insight regarding what a nurse can do, even if it's not just in the clinical environment. Yes. Um, it's a, sometimes I feel they think I'm absolutely crazy and I'm a nutcase. <laughs> Uh, but on the other hand, I I hope that they find inspiration in not not in me personally, but they find inspiration in seeing that you know nursing is not the end of their career, right? So they can do with their degree, with a nursing degree, they can do so much, you know, so, so much more. Um, unfortunately. And again, this is something that I can say, you know, confidently because I've seen it and I've, I've actually experienced it myself. The role of nurses and, and nurses as entrepreneurs in the UK is massively lacking. So we don't we don't see the same, you know, growth of of nurses as entrepreneurs or decision makers that we see in the States, for example, that we see in the rest of Europe, such as, you know, in Germany or Switzerland, where, where nurses, you know, they, yes, you have study nursing, you do have this degree, and it's incredibly valuable. What is the next step now? Do I open my own company? Do I start my own startup? Do I collaborate with a startup, bringing my skills, you know, and making myself really valuable? So it's not the case so much in the UK, um, it's a it's a big decision um you know entrepreneurship is stressful and it's uncertain so you really have to find something that you're extremely passionate about to actually decide for for such a step no i i was just going to say so is nursing nursing is is very very sacrificed um profession and sometimes you you know you see nurses that are very very frustrated with the system but there's not this 
drive inside for them to say, what else I can do? Because yes, being an entrepreneur is difficult, but so is being a nurse and it's very stressful. When you mentioned that there's still some scrutiny against nurses um, because of just the historic reasons where doctors uh, were seen at the top of the hierarchy, when you were uh, uh, doing the Rhythmia Breath uh, program and when you were reaching out to cardiologists, did you receive any, not exactly negative feedback, but just uh, doubt just because you know you're not a doctor? Every single week, every single week, um, you know, when I went to pitch the idea to a consultant, um, they listened, but I could also see that there was a sense of lack of trust, I can say, because I was not a doctor. Things change when I, when I became an arrhythmia specialist nurse and when I... And when I started working with this very specific type of patients, and obviously now I've been in the picture for almost a decade, and I know the environment, I know the consultants, and and I can swim and navigate this world in a different way. But still, yes, the fact that I am a nurse sometimes put a few doctors off. <laughs> and away from the project um, but I know how to deal with that how so what did what do you do well I just you know I've I found acceptance and I know that sometimes it, it's all about timing and it's all about you know educating the other part that we can do something else that we do not need to be doctors to be able to be successful and we have many different entrepreneurs that have actually taken the leap of saying, well, I'm not a doctor, I'm still going to go into the med tech scene. And they have developed very successful startups. I can say confidently that a very high percentage of all these entrepreneurs have not been in the medical settings themselves. They do have a co-founder, they do have, you know, they've, they've hired people, true. But they've still been very, very successful. When faced with skepticism were you ever so blunt as to just try the approach of saying now I know you might be skeptical because of me because I'm a nurse and not a doctor but I've worked with thousands of patients which is what gives me an insight and credibility I need to be sure about the efficacy of the work that I'm doing or was that not diplomatic approach enough No, no. I actually used uh, exactly what you said at the beginning of your sentence, but the other way around. Instead of giving uh, weight to the negative statement saying, I know I am not a doctor, but I used completely a different approach. I said, I am an arrhythmia specialist nurse and I do know my sector. I do know the customers and I have experience of X many years in the sector Therefore, I know you guys, I know how you work, I help you guys to develop, you know, excellence in, in your clinics. So this is the project. That's how I normally approach things now as an entrepreneur. Did you have a long learning curve, you know, to figure this out? How to just turn these things, simple words around to get better attention? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And I learned the hard way, the very, very hard way. Um, I heard many no's, I heard many, I'm not sure where you're going with this, and I also heard so many times, you will need to probably be a doctor, why don't you take four more years, become a doctor, and then you will have the credibility. But this is not what entrepreneurs do, what entrepreneurs do is they develop a set of skills in order to take the project forward, but not from changing who they are, but from evolving into what they do want and and who they want to become. I didn't, I never needed to become a doctor in order for me to make this happen. I needed to develop a great team, of course. I need to have partnership with consultant cardiologists, of course, but I don't need to become one because I do have the credibility from patients. I do have the credibility from investors and I do have credibility from, you know, other entrepreneurs that have been in my shoes before and they're not doctors. Therefore, I don't need to become a doctor. We actually didn't mention everything that you do. As part of an international medical team of holistic recovery, you also act as a mind-body therapist offering interventions with a focus on recovery from addictions, anxiety, mental distress and depression. So how does this type of counseling and care differ from the care and counseling for cardiovascular patients? Uh, while being diagnosed with heart disease or, or having a heart attack may increase the risk of depression, depression itself may also increase the chances of developing heart disease. It's basically one goes, you know, it's, they all go together. And there's a two-way relationship between heart disease and depression. But depression itself is an independent risk factor for adverse cardiac events in patients without known heart disease. So this is how strong the link is. On the other hand, patients with known heart disease, particularly those who develop a heart attack or Tarsoctubo syndrome, which is broken heart syndrome, are at increased risk of developing new diagnosis of depression. And in some cases, you can see who one leads to the other, right? Being depressed, sometimes, you know, It takes you to the world of addiction and the other way around. And I can, I can add a bit to this that uh, um, common lifestyle habits brought upon by depression are similar, very similar to traditional cardiovascular risk factors. And, you know, very quickly I named them. And these are sedentary lifestyle, obesity, um, smoking, poor diet, obviously, and overeating. We tend to forget overeating, by the way excessive alcohol consumption, drugs, etc. The major difference is in the initial diagnosis and understanding on all the risk factors, such as genetic, biological, psychological and environmental factors. You know, you just uh, made me think that this is something that is known and, you know, the connection between the mind and the body and the environmental factors and epigenetics but still at the same time the healthcare system usually doesn't have time to deal with that you know so doctors won't usually ask you about your 
everyday life about the problems that you're facing with uh, in in your everyday uh, struggles and everyday uh, jobs that you need to do so I wonder how do these findings go together with the clinical practice research has shown that the heart communicates to the brain in in, in four major ways right the one is neurologically and this is through the transmission of nerve impulses uh, another one is biochemically via hormones and neurotransmitters biophysically through pressure waves that's a very complex area by the way and energetically through the electromagnetic field um, of the heart and the brain so the heart and the brain are in constant communication there are approximately 4,000 neurons in the heart only in the heart and a couple of billions in the brain by the way uh, so these neurons in the heart they can think they can act and react to external stimulus Apart from that, this, the, the heart contains two billion specialized cells that are able to hold on to memories. So from this idea, now imagine a constant communication between the heart and the brain, but an even more constant communication from the heart up to the brain. The heart sends three times more information up to the brain than the other way around. Right. So imagine it's like is is like a very um, strong marriage <laughs> in which one of them is constantly telling the other how I feel. This science is called neurocardiology, and I lecture in different centers around uh, UK and also internationally now about the importance of looking after what you think, looking after your emotions, your feelings how you see the world and how you digest the information that comes from the from the external world because all of that is going to go straight up to the brain it's going to actually be part of who you are and how you see the world as well i'm constantly fascinated by the development of medicine and um, all the new discoveries like one of them is also the microbiome and this whole discussion how the microbiome is actually sending signals to the brain and not the other way around which can influence um, diseases but i think like my observation is that we are currently living in an era where there is such a strong emphasis on how much you have to think about how you think and process things and how does that influence your um, health you know when you start thinking about these things you can suddenly perhaps start to fear your own feelings so they wouldn't hurt you if you know what i'm trying to say yes totally i understand yes i've heard that many times before thinking about how you think and thinking about your thoughts and all this constant analysis and your thoughts sometimes it's not so positive as as people think right and this is why um so this can lead you to something that in in psychotherapy and and, and psychology is called downward spiral right and and i work a lot with patients with anxiety and depression you you can and i can see the tendency towards these patients going into this downward spiral Right. When I use 
meditation and mindfulness. I'm always very careful, very, very careful with how patients do these practices. Uh, mindfulness has very little side effects because you're basically focusing what is going on at the moment. So there's no risk that patients tend to ruminate, right, into the idea of why am I thinking this, why yes, why not. So, you know, but when meditation is being taught by a by someone that is not used to deal with anxiety or depression and the person has the tendency to go into this downward spiral, then we find a not so productive or not so positive side effects of this type of practices. When did you actually get into neurocardiology? And can you share a little bit about the current um, biggest hypothesis in this field? What are the hopes that with the development of neurocardiology, what are we going to discover? You know, there's always some hopes from yeah. every field. Yes, I was in the States and I was doing my uh, training to become a yoga therapist specialized in cardiovascular disease and cancer. And so when we needed to do, when we had to do a research project, I decided to, um, to use a cardiac patient. And then I started research and I started Googling things. And this is how I came with uh, neurocardiology. And I realized that, wow, it's a fascinating topic. And from there, I just started to, you know, buy books and, and read and making contacts and creating an, a network with people in the neurocardiology scene. And this is basically, you know, how, how I started. Um, so one of the most exciting new discoveries around neurocardiology. Uh, so in my opinion, the first one is now the, the heart is being recognized as an endocrine gland because it also helps to segregate um, certain type of hormones. But more specifically towards neurocardiology and how the heart interacts with the brain, we've now seen and discovered, as I said before, that the heart sends signals up to the brain like three times more. And this has to do with how the baroreceptors communicate and how the baroreceptors in the heart sends information up to the brain. So this information can be in a state of coherence or can be in a state of incoherence. And that has to do with the quality of our emotions. Depending on the type of emotion that we have, we are having a different electromagnetic wave up to the brain, which can be in a state of, as I said, coherence or incoherence. I just have uh, one, one more question for you uh, regarding nursing, nursing and nurses. What would you say that are the biggest unmet needs for nurses in today's time where recognition and the attitude towards them is improving slightly, but what are still the untapped needs according to your observation and your experience? One, mental health support. And two, recognition. How long have you been working in the clinical practice, by the way? 
in the hospital as an arrhythmia specialist nurse, now four years in the NHS. Overall, 12 years. And in the private sector as a stress management, 10 years now. During all this time, how much did you see that technology started entering the clinical space and how much burden is that causing uh, nurses? I know that the NHS is now uh, working hard to digitize the system, but still, maybe if you've got opinions there, especially given that you were also in the US. Only a few since since a few years ago the uk market or let's say the nhs has been willing to open the conversation around the digitalization of uh, you know patient's care and um, patient data collection only a few years ago most doctors i used to work with and i still work with they were they weren't very open towards the idea that, for example, wearables were going to save, you know, someone's life, for example. Or wearables were going to help tremendously in the diagnosis of XYZ conditions. And only now, after COVID, I can really see how the NHS has been pushing this wearables and, and digital health technology. Whereas in the past, I've, I've actually spoken with a few founders of digital therapeutic platforms, apps, and, 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 you know, and, and tech companies that have tried really hard to implement their project and the, the approach into the NHS and never happened. I know companies that were funded in 2011 and they, they were delivering a fantastic, you know, fantastic work um, and never work in the NHS. They went to the States. They're now multi-million dollar companies. Um, one of the companies that is now been a huge success in the NHS, I don't, I'm not going to name them, um, and I know the founder, this poor guy has been struggling seven years trying to bring their project into the NHS. Communication between patients while you are waiting for a procedure. The NHS was completely reluctant to even admit that this could be a good idea. Since COVID, these guys has now have several contracts with different NHS settings. They are growing and they are doing really well. So I am delighted to see that happened. But it, 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 it actually took many, many lives for them to realize that the digitalization of the healthcare system is a must. And if it's not happening, if it doesn't happen, the service is going to disappear or is going to, you know, damage more life than what is helping at the moment. And I'm very, I'm very rigid and very strict in my statement, but I do work in the system. I know how it functions and I know how many doors has been closed before. Uh, given given the push that's happening uh, with COVID and with the adoption of telemedicine, do how how do you expect your job as an arrhythmia specialist nurse is going to change because the whole care is changing? So I can recommend a patient to download a device, uh, hopefully in in a few months or perhaps 
couple of years, we will be able to provide it in the NHS, portable ECG machines, right? For, <clears throat> for a fraction of the price to what is at the moment. Or, you know, a, a form of wearable where patients can communicate with a consultant. They can send us their data before they see a practitioner. That will save us a tonned amount of money, a huge amount of time and resources, and it will make the service so much more efficient. I have patients right now, since we started the tele telemedicine in the NHS, I have patients that before they see me in my clinic, in my um, community clinic, before they see me, they send the data from their ECG to our department. The admin uploads it into their records and I'm able to see an ECG that they took when they had symptoms. So I am saving the NHS a seven days halter monitor. I'm saving them a second appointment and I'm saving them a complaint because this patient had to go to A&E because of his symptoms or her symptoms. So this is how digital health can, or the digitalization of medicine can, can support the system. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you like the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. This is the fuel for the show and helps others interested in digital health find the show as well. To browse through past episodes and find more about the podcast, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. And of course, stay tuned. <laughs>